bottom stage with Alice Randall. I'm your host, Alice Randall. Each episode of this podcast will explore the life of a particular saint in the novel Black Bottom Saints, the rich history of Detroit's Black Bottom neighborhood, what the Detroit past has to tell us about the global future, and end with a cocktail recipe. This podcast is for people who have and have not read Black Bottom Saints. Each episode will be talking about the play between history and fiction, how one informs the other. I hope a stop here is a little like meeting up with a talkative stranger in the lobby of Detroit's fabled Gotham Hotel. This week, I want to introduce you to Skipper Mills, and to do him justice, I've invited on a very special guest, Danielle A. Jackson. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you so much, Alice. I'm happy to be here. Before we get started talking about Skipper Mills, I want to give Danielle a proper black bottom, a Ziggy, a Nellie Hill trap introduction and say, this woman, Danielle A. Jackson, we are welcoming to our podcast stage, shakes things up. She is the first black editor in chief of the Oxford American in the OA's 29 year history. She deserves the spotlight we are giving her this episode in no small part because she spotlights other people's art and craft while making art of her own. Our favorite Danielle Jackson quote, and this came from the producers, Chelsea and Aaron, and from me, I like stories that trouble borders and boundaries we have all taken for granted for too long. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you. That was an out-of-this-world introduction, Alice. But that's an up-south, does Danielle deserves an introduction. Danielle, you are now a gatekeeper. You control access to one of America's most important magazines, and arguably the most important when it comes to writing about Southern food and Southern music and publishing in those two arenas. Skipper Mills was a gatekeeper, opening doors for his sons, the Mills brothers. And we see two other gatekeepers at work in this chapter, William Paley, the president of CBS, and Johnny Cash, the star of the Johnny Cash show. Both of these men had the power to allow access to a giant and powerful stage. Now you have the power to offer access to a powerful stage, the pages of the OA. Tell us the flash fiction but true version of how you, Danielle, got to this role of gatekeeper, starting with being born. Black Bottom Saints is a novel that celebrates lives, and I want listeners to have some sense of the woman celebrating Skipper Mills with me today. So give us a six-sentence story of Danielle's life. Six sentences. You can have a few more if you need. (laughs) That is is a wonderful guideline. I love the guideline. Um, So, yes, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, in actually 1980. My my mom is from Memphis. My grandmother, my mom's mother, was born actually in Clarksdale after her mother moved there from Dallas County, Alabama, right after Reconstruction, um, where she had been enslaved. My great-grandmother was was born before before the Emancipation Proclamation, before the Civil War. I'm super close to the institution and I take that with me and, and hold that close to me in everything, everything that I do. So yeah, but I was born at the end of the 20th century and 
was born into a family super interested in pretty much every aspect of art making, every kind of art making. Um, my brother drew, my sister was a speaker and pageant queen. Um, she performed, she was in like Miss Black Memphis and Miss Black Shelby County. My mother had her in like finishing school classes and we all spoke and did really detailed and lengthy recitations at church, like reciting James Weldon Johnson, you know, Paul Lawrence Dunbar from a really, really young age at our missionary Baptist church. I just, I really just took for granted that art making was a part of a way of life. My mom, my family didn't necessarily work in the arts, but we, we made art as a way of making our lives, enjoying and savoring the sweetness of our lives and, and sharing with each other. We're, there was always music. My mom um, in the 80s played so much Anita Baker and Phyllis Hyman and Sade in those years, the kind of quiet storm queens of that era that really also spoke, I think, to, to striving. So yeah, we, my mom put us in all the great, all the best schools, all the best public schools in the city, tested into them and um, made sure that we took accelerated classes, just really took for granted that we were going to college. So I'm a whole lot younger than my two siblings and both of them went to college before me. My sister went to Vanderbilt. My brother went to Memphis State, now University of Memphis. And then when I came along, I went to school in Washington, D.C. at American because I wanted at the time actually to study international relations and like diplomacy, but also continue making art, writing and acting and doing things like on the side, which is how I thought a life in the arts needed to be made. All the while in school, I was doing internships or extracurriculars that were art-based while maintaining my coursework. And when I graduated, um, I moved to New York and pretty much lived the same kind of life where my day job would be doing one thing and just the same kind of life, I mean, mirrored pretty much after, after my mother and people I saw in my mother's family who um, made a living and then also came home to their communities and made and shared in, in the art that they were creating and that their community members were making. So yeah, I worked at like a publishing company, Fight and Press. I worked for Nielsen, but I was also taking writing workshops and figuring out how to submit. And one thing led to another. <laughs> After many, many years of striving in New York, and I got a job editing for Long Reads, which is a digital first publication based, owned now by WordPress, but based um, pretty much in a distributed fashion all around the world. I put together a couple of digital first zines. One was focused on women writing about music, very much in the way that I learned from my family um, to think about like the art that they liked and consumed in a like rigorous way, like experts, but also to be figuring to be living with that art. Then I saw a job open for the Oxford American that was going to be focused on bringing to life the music issue every year, which is always the biggest issue that the Oxford American produces, not just for its length and size, but also because of all the other kind of tertiary accoutrements. Like there's a CD and there's a, a suite of events usually. So that always kind of takes the dedicated leadership of one person and just, you know, by 
the grace of God. And I think a lot of hard work, I mean, this is like after 15 years of freelancing in New York and working at Long Reads as a contractor and um, having two or three full-time jobs essentially at the same time and publishing widely, I got an interview and I guess the, the rest is kind of history. So I, I like to tell people that the reason that, or what brought me to the Oxford American was a genuine and true interest and participation in the arts organizations of our region from a really young age. You know, I got to take advantage of regional theater. I got to perform and learn poise and all the things that you learn in the church in a really supportive audience. And, and those are the institutions that like boosted me up and that I like to highlight and, 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 and give its give it shine in the pages of the Oxford American because there's a whole, that's how, that's how I got here. That's how pretty much everybody that I love got to, got to where they are. Well, way more than six sentences. <laughs> and every one of them was so beautiful and why Ziggy would have adored you and why you are the perfect person to be here with us celebrating Skipper Mills, starting with that Dallas County, Alabama mm -hmm. connection. So much of Detroit, the Black Bottom Saints come up from Alabama and my family specifically from Dallas County. I think Cordy King would have loved your pageant queen sister. And because you are also an editor and Ziggy loved being a columnist, I think that everything you said about editing and school, his beloved Shirley McNeil would have approved. Mm -hmm. When we first met, you were editing the 2020 issue of the Oxford American and you included an excerpt from Black Bottom Saints, the Laverne Baker chapter, and you invited me to frame it with new reflections of up South, what Detroit, Alabama means. If you were to choose just one highlight of that first issue uh, and shine a light on one piece that you don't think got enough attention, and this time I'm gonna hold you to one name and okay. two sentences, what piece would that be from your original? Sure, so probably, Aside from yours, so I'm already cheating, but aside from yours, which I revisit often, it would be Harmony Holiday's piece, The Missing Black Notes, about, about Florence Price, who has a similar up-south trajectory to many people that we've been talking about. She was born in Little Rock and taught school, taught piano um, here for many years and in the region. And she may have taught piano to sister Rosetta Tharp, in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, and um, just classic music, as a, a composer, and she couldn't really get work in Little Rock and many, most of the middle class, I think it's, I've seen up to 40% of the black middle class that have been growing um, in Little Rock after um, Reconstruction left in 1927 following the lynching of a man named John Carter. And she left and went to Chicago and got to have her symphonies performed. Um, first black woman to have her own compositions performed for a major symphonic hall. I love that you spotlight that piece. It is a piece I think is worthy of so much additional note. And it is a piece that spotlights the ongoing intense and underlooked at intersection between black arts even an art that appears as soft as the symphonic arts and intersections with violence to black bodies and artists. 
and the terror of the lynching in that community and the impact it had on this artist. Uh, Skipper Mills said that Jim Crow was the essential, the extra Mills brother that rode with them everywhere they went. And they were exposed to many threats against their body and life for just presenting their music across the country and sometimes overseas. When you recently edited my piece on the Mills Brothers, which appears in the current winter issue of the OA, I was worried when I pitched it because I didn't know about your whole background that the idea of a piece writing about my grandmother and I watching the Lawrence Welk show on television wouldn't be received well unless you received it. I knew even then you were the only possible editor in the world that got that piece. Really? That piece, I will say, well, I mean, starting back to your piece on Laverne Baker, when you, there's some sentences in there where you talk about rebuilding and refashioning a map based on how the Black audience actually listens, that struck a chord with me and stuck with me and is what really led me to thinking, you know, because it matched what I, I knew from my own, my own body and my own listening and my own like personal travels and journeys to, to, to find work and to be like productive, um, that it resonated. And I knew that my, my grandmother had moved, you know, and her mother had moved and been a bunch of a collective of like striving women who took with them what they what they got and rebuilt and made it somewhere else and just i started thinking that we could do something really amazing that troubled borders like you said that i said in that sentence before that the south is so much more diffuse and so much more influential right um if you really count our audiences and our and our aesthetics, and if you really trace, if you really trace that, the map would look just would explode the map. So your piece did that, and I just started thinking we could do we could do a whole issue that celebrates that kind of that kind of exploded, um, diffuse constellation of places using the black audience as our guide. So yeah, and specifically talking about your grandmother. Um, being from B Dallas County, Alabama, and having, you know, a ritual that she used, um, or that that y'all had together to get together to watch that show, and that you know you were a little girl and you remember blowing bubbles, and she would dress up in finery and put on wondrous perfume. Those kind of really delicate artistic riches towards around like cultivating personal beauty and enjoying like your life just just completely mirrored everything that everything that I like was taught and the ways that that I grew up like I have memories of my mother getting dressed to Anita Baker's rapture and curling her hair with Marcel irons and spraying a perfume and she would like be in a rush and like dart across where I was sitting like on the floor in the living room and I it would be there would be a waft of vanilla and then Anita Baker's rapture and that really reminded me it's part of why your story reminded me of or just i felt like it struck a chord and then that piece you know the personal reckoning around you know the personal reflection and thought around black rituals black women's rituals in particular and in addition to just like the rigor of the piece like you're talking about um the lawrence welk show 
and you're talking about the Johnny Cash show and you're talking about Will Harden and that recording session on which she is not credited. Will Harden was, was born in Memphis um, around the same time, a few years before my grandmother um, was born. You know, it's just my favorite kind of piece that is personal and tender and about like girlhood and soft memories, but also really, really rigorous and incisive. And it became a model, just like Laverne Baker piece did, of what I thought we could do and what I wanted the other writers to be able to, to rise to. And I would say after your piece, I think the next one that really spoke to me, like kind of in order and that I like started working on immediately after, um, was I Love the Way It Sounds by Linnell George who also talks a lot about black girlhood, but in Los Angeles and observing her mother and her aunts cooking and like making family dinners and family kind of get togethers in Los Angeles where they had traveled to, but everything sounded like New Orleans. And she would be like a little girl eavesdropping on conversations spoken in a certain like in Creole, basically, that she couldn't understand or words that she like really didn't know and the music that had all these like double entendres. Those are the things that took her and, and taught her about the place that her people came from. But it's like grounded in these rituals of womanhood, black womanhood, um, seen through the lens of a little girl. So that's, that's why, and that's why all those pieces kind of speak to each other in that way. Yours is really the first. I think one way of distilling that coming out of your beautiful meditation on those pieces and on the echoes in your own life is that we provide mirrors for each other mm -hmm. and you create that opportunity. The last lines of the Skipper Mills chapter are, so much of what I do, and that's, this is Ziggy speaking, for the kids in my school is what I saw Skipper do for his sons. The best thing he did, teach his sons how to venture into the white world, Skipper Mills style. Don't go alone, holler when you have to, and if possible, get the press on your side. Don't go alone, holler when you have to, and if possible, get the press on your side. I have loved working with editors who don't look like me, and that is not a requirement for me to work with an editor but none of my white writing friends, no, not one of them that I know of, knows what it's like to never have an opportunity to work with an editor who looks like them or whose family experiences rhyme with their own. When you arrived at the OA, I had a new way of following Skipper Mills' advice. So often when I'm writing, I am very much alone with my black up South perspective. So often the holler calling for reckoning encounters an attempt to silence. So often the press isn't on our side, even when it wants to be, because it doesn't have the lived experience, the immersive experience of the perspective. Your presence changes that, Danielle Jackson. You are also a writer, a well-published writer. What do you think it means for a writer to be able to work with an editor that looks like them, and reflect some of their lived experience? Or more specifically, what do you want that to be when you offer that to your writers who identify with you? Thank you for that question. I hope that I am a person who is what 
I've always wanted and what I continue to want in editors that I work with. And that's a person who respects and has like some some sense of what it is I'm I'm trying to do and who just isn't who isn't surprised or or doesn't feel baffled by certain things like that a black grandmother for example would tune into the Lawrence Welk show that I mean that's not surprising to me black people that I my my family listened to and watched you know everything and loved everything my auntie who actually is the person in the family who lived in Detroit for a little bit of time loved the Elvis Presley one of Elvis's um, gospel albums it's like her favorite album along with Amazing Grace I think a lot of times what happens in the writer and editor relationships is just like actually on the page a lot of what does this mean explain this break into this a little bit for me we we don't want you to say this particular word that is like AAVE, for example, can we put a definition like in a parenthesis or take it out or just, you know, say it in standard English or something like that? I see and understand and treasure that bilingualism and trilingualism that people of color have. And I want to just like from a base, like a baseline, figure out how the pieces and the stories can be the best as they are. Like we're truly a bilingual people, so let's figure out how to to copy edit and developmentally edit these pieces in in ways that serve there and start there from that locus of who of who we actually are. That's what I want to be, and I mean, I also just want to be, you know, I want to be able to tell stories and present stories, publish stories that are told from that perspective, like that insider perspective. What I love about um, Black Bottom Saints and the Skipper Mills chapter, but you know, also the I was reading reading on to the Nat King Cole chapter is that the audience is, you know, of the factory workers specifically in Detroit, but you know, just the black audience in general, the circuit of of black listeners is super discerning because they listen and consume so much, and it's becomes a part of their lives. There, there's an expertise, like a base level of of expertise that that members of um, that black audiences have and I I just want to tap into that and highlight that so that every piece is not necessarily about works of art or or artists like in an anthropological sense like you know we read a lot of seen a lot of pieces um, or stories or books written about the blues for example you know trying to figure out what kind of these like poor sharecroppers were talking about, right? But what did that feel like from the inside? Um, what was the charge? What was the freedom that people were talking about to each other? And what were they communicating? What were they using it for? That's what I'm interested in highlighting a lot more of. I haven't seen, you know, as much as I would like. And it's what's been true to my life. Danielle, that is such important work, taking the aesthetics of the Black audience and raising them to be shared critical structures for the largest audience. Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing for so many what Skipper Mills did for his sons. Open the gates so their brilliance would shine and shine into the lives of their global audience. Thank you for recognizing that their art is informed by their audience. This doesn't happen without the gatekeepers. I'm pleased that you are now one. And I will give the closing words to Ziggy. 
it's hard for young people coming up now to understand what a phenomenon the Mills brothers were. In 1934, Paley, William Paley, the president of CBS, put them on the radio and they were the first sepian act to have a national radio show. This meant they were the first act to be dramatically bigger than all the other acts. And it wasn't just radio, it was film. They were featured in film. One of their films, 20 Million Sweethearts. And it was the live performances. They broke all the attendance records at the Howard Theater in Washington, DC. People stood in lines that were blocks long for hours to buy tickets to one of the five shows they did each day of a week long run. That's 35 shows in one week. The first show was at noon. The last ended at 2.30 in the a.m. Danielle, no one knows that without you putting that article in the Oxford American. Many more people read your magazine than will buy any but the most successful books. Thank you for being a bridge from an audience of the long lost black past to the audience of the global present. Libation for the feast day of Skipper Mills, a whole orchestra. One jigger of old Tom gin, one half lime juiced, two dashes of grenadine. Fill a large mixing glass with lime juice, add the gin and grenadine and shake, strain into a cocktail glass and serve. Next week, we'll be talking about the unforgettable, the extraordinary, the already just mentioned by Danielle Nat King Cole and welcoming Stephen Lewis, curator of music and performing arts at the Smithsonian's Museum, National Museum of African-American History to the podcast. This day, we were more than thrilled to welcome here the inimitable Danielle, first Black editor-in-chief of the Oxford American, Ms. Jackson. Until next podcast, keep zagging with Ziggy and always remember joy is radical. Is joy radical, Danielle? Absolutely. Joy is absolutely radical. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I could not have been welcome someone that Ziggy would have loved more. He loved an editor. This podcast was produced by Chelsea Crowell and Aaron McAnally. The theme from Black Bottom Saints was written and recorded by Lewis York. Nashville Women Blues was recorded by Reese Palmer and written by Bessie Smith. The novel Black Bottom Saints is published by Amistad, HarperCollins, and is available at your favorite bookstore and on Audible. Find out more at alicerandall.com.